Welcome to episode three, season two of Cleveland State University's Psychology Club podcast. As usual, I'm Kevin, joined by Madhua. And in today's episode, we talked with Patrick Fredo, who is a school psychologist, and he is an instructor in the Cleveland State University's school psychology program. Yeah, uh, I think this conversation was probably... Uh, the second conversation focusing on school psychology and uh, r- r- topics related to that. Uh, and it's a nice compliment to the conversation that we had with Dr. Sherin Nasir, who also talked about some of the topics uh, that, that we might find here in our conversation with Dr. Fredo. Absolutely. And I think it, in a way, it also kind of complements our episode with Dr. Gansi so that, you know, with her, we got a clinical perspective. And um, from uh, Patrick Fredo, we get more of a, I guess, an idea of like what's really going on in the schools because he, he worked in the, the field for a while before he, um, you know, came to Cleveland State to work as, a, as an instructor. So, uh, yeah, with nothing further, we give you Patrick Fredo. Hello, Dr. Fredo. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? Well, uh, we're excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, one uh, a standard question that we ask all of our guests is basically how did they get interested in psychology? So what's your story behind that? Um, interested in psychology in general? Uh, well, I think I'm probably interested in psychology for the same reasons that most people are interested because um, just uh, I, once I started learning about psychology, I started to understand myself more and other people more. And I think that once you start understanding the world uh, better, then you become more comfortable in it and less concerned about things you don't have to be concerned about. And I think it uh, gives you a better sort of sense of peace and well-being. Um, and so you you know, I think there are just a lot of other curious things to study in psychology, um, and so I found it just a, an interesting field in, in, in general, um, and, and, and just became passionate about it from probably from high school on. Okay. So one thing uh, that is peculiar about your profile is that uh, you are a school psychologist, so we both were uh, like talking about it with what what is the role of school psychologist and how it, how it differs from like a clinical psychologist who studies children mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and uh, um, disorders related to children and what does the school psychologist bring to the table that probably a clinical psychologist doesn't bring so even with us when we were talking about it we had like the ideas were not clear as of what is the special role of a school psychologist so what would you say school psychology is first and what is the role of a school psychologist in general and how it differs from other psychologists gotcha so this is a great question because a lot of people don't most people don't know what a school psychologist is or what school psychologists do and you know when we look at sort of the folks who apply for our graduate program versus apply for clinical the clinical folks always have you know hundreds of people applying to their program and we typically have like 60 to 80 which is fine but it's just a testament to the fact that i think when most people think psychology they don't think school psychology they don't know what it is but you do know what clinical psychology is because you're like well that's what freud does you know that's what a therapist does and that seems really appealing and that's why i got into school psychology or why i got into psychology i think that's why a lot of people get into psychology so school psychology um 
there's certainly some overlap between that and clinical psychology and some of the other areas. Um, we do do counseling. We do, you know, provide therapy and um, therapeutic interventions, but it's mainly with um, student uh, age, you know, the, the student age population from, you know, K through 12 or pre-K through 12, so ages 3 through 21, you know, you could say is, is what we're mainly focused uh, or the age group that we're mainly focused on. Um, so school psychologists in schools, what do they do? I mean, it, it's almost a question of what they don't do these days. But generally speaking, like the traditional idea of what a school psychologist does in a school environment is to um, give assessments and, and evaluations um, and integrate all of that information into sort of like a coherent, you know, um, picture of a child in terms of their strengths and their 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 needs and, and using strengths to um, come up with interventions that uh, address the child's needs and, and monitoring progress to make sure that they, um, you know, are, are overcoming some of their academic issues or behavioral issues, social-emotional issues. I mean, any sort of issue that could present itself in a school environment um, can be the school psychologist's issue to help address. And so we use a comprehensive problem-solving model. I mean, just as uh, a physician might use a problem-solving model to sort of diagnose and treat, you know, an illness and monitor the progress, uh, school psychologists do the same. Um, in schools for behavioral, social-emotional, academic issues. Um, so it's it's a pretty dynamic role that involves, I think, just a lot of different areas of psychology and, and, and need. Um, and, and one's ability to apply all of those to any of those needs at any given uh, point in time. And so it's fast-paced. You deal with um, a, a ton of different issues, you know, in, in short periods of time. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a rewarding um you know, uh, field to be in. So how does it differ from um, other forms of psychology? I mean, in clinical, whereas you may be um, doing more of the sort of counseling, um, you know, or at least that's sort of what a lot of clinical psychologists do, you'll do some of that as a school psychologist, but you're probably heavier on the evaluation problem-solving component than you are on the, the counseling component, although that varies from job to job. I mean, I've had jobs where I've been maybe 40% counselor, you know, 50% evaluator and then you know 10% uh, problem-solving consultant and then there have been other times at which I've been you know 100% uh, or maybe 90% in the evaluation category and then there have been other jobs where I've been uh, more of like a systems consultant um, where I've been sort of like a curriculum coordinator. Uh, so there are many different possibilities, you know, uh, in terms of roles that you can play as a school psychologist. And um, in the four jobs that I've had as a school psychologist, each one has been significantly different. Um, and it, I might even say vastly different. And, and that's one of the neat things, uh, you know, you can sort of go through a 30, 35 year career, however long you want to work and, you know, switch it up every couple of years if there's something that you're interested in it and there's a particular school or, or you know, um, population that needs uh, assistance, you know, in, in an area that you're interested in, in sort of specializing in. So is it possible in one role you might be doing more of like evaluating and then coming up with a plan for a specific classroom or even a student and then you know, somebody else maybe like a counselor is actually like implementing it i'm sorry to interrupt let me move oh sure yeah so make sure you're talking don't talk directly into the microphone okay, okay. Um, just kind of no patrick you're good, oh, good. Okay. um Mado, you're just talking more to the side okay. when I would normally pick you up on this mic. Okay. So I'm just gonna change it, but we're all good. 
Okay. Didn't mean to interrupt. So Kevin, oh, have cool. you restart your question? Go okay. on headphones and I'll cue you and then I'll edit it together. Okay, cool. Sorry about that. No, it's okay. So is it is it that depending on what role you're in, somebody might be doing more of the evaluating and then coming up with uh, like a plan that might be implemented by like say a counselor or a teacher or um, like somebody else in that process? Exactly. In most cases, the school psychologist isn't the direct implementer of the intervention. In some cases they are, but, but yeah, we're helping to facilitate coming up with these plans and we focus on evidence and research-based interventions um, to ensure that uh, student outcomes are improved in whatever area of need is presented to us. So, um, you, go ahead. Okay, uh, I just read somewhere that being a school psychologist is one of the well-paid subfields within psychology. Am I right in thinking that? One of the better paid? Yes. Um, I don't know what other psychologists make, so I can't really <laughs> speak to that. I do know that the compensation is fair. Um, you know, uh, the I think a starting school psychologist these days for a nine-month contract or a ten-month contract, so there's a great deal of time off. You know, you're working between 185 days a year or, you know, up to maybe 220, uh, 220 days a year. It's a good gig in terms of sort of life balance uh, because you're working sort of school hours in a lot of cases. You've got these holidays, you've got snow days, you've got the summer off, and, you know, some more summer than others. But, um, yeah, so they probably start in the range of fifty to $80,000 for those limited contracts. And the nice thing is you get paid throughout the year. So if you, you know, have something you want to do in the summer, like another job, or if you just want to travel the world or whatever, you're still getting paid and you've got your insurance. And um, so from the uh, perspective of, of compensation and benefits, um, I think it's pretty high up there in, in psychology fields, but I, I don't know the compensation of other um, psychologists out there, so to be able to say that, that we're better or, or worse. So. Okay, makes sense. Have you seen a change, you know, you mentioned kind of implementing evidence-based um, uh, interventions um, since maybe the time that like you came into the field and then has the research sort of changed the way that things are done in, in that amount of time as far as like for what you've seen from your personal experience? Yeah, my personal experience is there's been more and more emphasis on using research and evidence-based um, interventions and, and that it's easier to locate those interventions through, you know, the uh, internet is certainly helpful. You know, the, there are sites that have been improved and improved upon where, you know, if you have a specific problem, you're working with a specific age of student, you can um, just kind of click on that and you'll get 10 interventions uh, that, you know, could address that particular issue for that particular age group that are all research-based and they'll give you sort of the specific steps of what you need to follow um, in order to implement that intervention. So, uh, yeah, we're, there's a great deal of research that occurs in our field um, looking for evidence-based, research-based uh, interventions and sort of testing and retesting them to see what works best. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your um, bilingual background, specifically Spanish and English, and, um, and talk a little bit about bilingual psychoeducation. 
So um, after my third year as a school psychologist, um, I was in Reynoldsburg schools near Columbus. Uh, I had never had sort of the travel abroad experience in um, college, uh, but I always wanted to have that. So I said, you know what, I'm going to like, I really want to learn Spanish, but I don't want to take courses at Ohio State over the summer because, you know, wh why? I should just, you know, go to another country and immerse myself. So uh, I moved to Argentina and um, I, uh, for like the first three months while I was there, I just took um, Spanish uh, classes, you know, at an, an intensive private school. And then once I felt like, you know, I, I had um, sort of learned a, a basic level of conversational Spanish, uh, I got a number of jobs in the country. And I, I thought that I was going to come back after that three months because it was just the summer that, you know, is there summer here, winter there, which stinks, by the way. <laughs> um, but uh, but then I wound, wound up staying for, you know, an, another year after that um, and just learning Spanish better and, and doing a number of different um, jobs that I I actually found on Craigslist in um, Argentina. Uh, and then after that time, I uh, came back to um, uh, Aurora Public Schools, which is right near Denver, and uh, worked there uh, as starting up their bilingual evaluation team. And so the reason that I got the job there that I didn't know about until you know I arrived and they told me was that the um, Office of Civil Rights had come in and had sort of looked through a number of their evaluations, 200 of the evaluations they had, they had, um, had been completed in the last few years at Aurora Public Schools. Uh, evaluations for the possibility that kids were going to um, have school-based disabilities and they had not included information about the child's you know first language or had not uh, given evaluations in their first language and so my job was to go back and do you know redo 200 of these evaluations uh, to make sure that um, kids had these these um, either uh, IQ tests that have been um, or, uh, administered in Spanish or speech pathology tests that have been administered in Spanish or academic tests that have been administered in Spanish and then include that information in the determination of whether or not the child qualified for special education services. Um, and so that was kind of my start with uh, um, sort of bilingual psychoeducational evaluation. But the, the idea behind it is just that, okay, kids are coming into our system and they've got a, a native language and then they've got their second language, which is English. And in some cases, it's their third language and maybe they have an indigenous language which is their first you know and, and their second language was you know Spanish and then their third language was English and in any case you're trying to account for their you know ability um, or their skills uh, in other languages um, in addition to English sometimes you're trying to determine which is the stronger language and which evaluation you should um, uh, give more credence to and sometimes you're just trying to uh, you're just trying to include that information or integrate that information to say okay their ability in English is this their ability in in their first language is this and um, how am I going to integrate that information to understand them better and whether or not this academic issue that they're presenting with is the result of them being an English language learner pardon me or uh, them really having a, a school-based disability or, or a disability that's impacting them, something biological. Uh, so that's what I was trying to do, just trying to tease apart, is this a language issue or is this a true disability? Uh, and using sort of uh, my bilingual ability and ability to test in different languages to tease that apart. I think that kind of gets into another question that we have. Um, what are some of the challenges that are unique to Spanish-speaking students that are in a like English-first kind of curriculum? I would like to ask 
uh, along with that i'd also like to ask like a broader question about this because uh, what you said is very interesting to me because i come from india where there's a lot of iq testing happening and sometimes uh, we don't have the tests uh, that are in the language that is na- uh, their native language mm-hmm. so you end up having to test them in a language that is either the national language or the language that is english and i think it affects the scores that uh, the children get on those uh, tests and that kind of determines their educational outcomes so i was wondering if uh, when you do correct for the language do you see an increased scores and uh, in on those tests and stuff like that that's a really good question i mean when we when you correct for the language do you see an increase in the iq scores and and the answer is not always okay. um because sometimes um a child's first language is is still not their best academic language okay uh and sometimes the, the parents have sort of like are concerned about uh providing their child with in, enriching first language experiences because they maybe they're in the United States and they say well I don't want to speak Spanish for instance to my child because I'm going to confuse them and so they try to speak their limited English to the child and so they kind of create an impoverished language environment and and background and um the issue with that then is is that they don't have a very strong first language and they don't have a very strong second language hmm. and so as a result they just struggle uh, on both of those um tests and so that can be a concern until they end up acquiring one stronger academic um language and and some that's a process with a lot of kids who are dual language learners uh is 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 that you know sometimes the language development is slowed in both languages because i mean they have limited capacity and they're splitting their efforts between two languages um but you know over time i think that works itself out they say it takes about 5 to 7 years at least to acquire uh and this is what some research says to acquire uh academic proficiency in a language uh, that is not your first language and so if that's the case i mean that's a long period of time to wait to give an iq test to a student and lots of times schools jump the gun on that because you know after a year or two a child's very much struggling they're trying to figure out what's going on so they give an iq test but the child may not have a strong language at that point in time the score comes out lower and then they use that maybe to justify special education services as opposed to english language learner services so i guess the the answer to that is you don't always see a higher score because there are other confounding factors mm. then i think a lot of those have to do or could be corrected by the way in which we talk to families and work with families of english language learners um before they get to school um to say hey first language is very important because without a strong first language basis it's difficult to build a second language it's important to speak to your child to provide enriching activities in a first language to even do some act- academic work with them or else it will be very difficult for them to um you know build that second language and in addition when the, it if and when the time comes where they're given an IQ test or an achievement test or they're a communication test uh in in one of the other languages uh if they at least have one strong language then we'll get a better read on their ability or skills in that area than mm-hmm. if both languages are are kind of weak if that makes sense yeah and does yeah and then um I mean what are some of the challenges that are 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 born out of that as far as um you know children that are you know essentially being educated in like their second language or um one that they're not is uh experienced in 
Well, I mean, one of the things that we uh, try to do in these classes for kids with English, uh, who, who are English language learners, is to uh, provide an environment that allows them to feel comfortable with taking risks and, you know, um, making mistakes so that, you know, feedback can be provided to kind of correct those mistakes and whatnot and, and to um, use language as much as possible. And this gets back to your question of challenges. When you're in a larger classroom, I mean, put yourself in, in the shoes of, of a child, you know, who's coming over. Uh, from a, a different place where they speak differently, they, they behave differently, there's a different culture. Um, to speak out and to take risks um, is re requires a, a great deal of courage that, you know, understandably not every child has and we shouldn't expect them to have to have that. Uh, and so that's sort of one of the difficulties with these, these kiddos is, is that without them sort of taking risks and speaking up in class and, and really engaging, um, then they're not going to learn as well. And so we need to provide these environments where they feel comfortable, where they feel accepted, where they can take risks, where um, we under they understand that it's okay to get feedback because that's really what's required in the learning process. Anyone who has learned a second language and learned it well knows that you gotta make mistakes. You gotta feel okay, you have to feel comfortable. You can't feel like you know, your soul is going to be crushed every time you speak up. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you've, you've gotta be able to take those risks and you gotta be okay with getting feedback in order to correct and to improve. And so, so I think those are some of the biggest challenges, you know, in, in various environments. And, you know, to just as an aside to that, you know, we're at a moment in our country where, you know, folks aren't uh, necessarily accepting, you know, um, different people or immigrants as much. And so that makes it even more difficult for kids to speak up these days, and which is very unfortunate because it's it's the last sort of pressure that they need um, that, that will continue to be a barrier to them um, gaining that academic English and that, that confidence to, to really succeed in school. Hmm. Do you have next question? Um, I was just going to kind of pass it over to you. Sure. Doing some editing on this one. Um, uh. I'll just point out while you're looking. I'm really excited to be on a podcast because <laughs> I love podcasts. And, uh, you know, I listened to so many of them. And so, you know, when Dr. McLennan was mentioning, you know, that you guys are doing this, I was like, oh, I got to get on this. I'm, I'm glad that you reached out. <laughs> yeah, I think that this was, um, I think we had kind of heard that, that you had mentioned that. Yes. I was like, oh, we should ask him then. Like, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was working from both directions. I, I think these are great educationally, you know, and for, for uh, people to learn about um, new things, you know, while they're driving or, for me, like it's gardening or whatnot. It's, it's yeah. sort of my peaceful my way of, of sort of making peace with the world that's true I'm, i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about you know how like the research findings sort of like work their way eventually into being implemented into a school like what that process is like or you know what might the lag be between like okay like there's a body of literature now around you know a certain idea and then now, like however many years later, it's finally getting implemented. Or was there we talk yes. a little bit about that? So we'll say two things about that. that's a great question because I, you know one I think the frustrations of academia is that a lot of great work is done here, but it never makes its way out of the ivory towers. You know, and and how do we communicate all 
all the things that, that have been learned here. And, you know, these days, I think with, you know, the sort of PubMed warriors, people just realizing the use, <laughs> the value of this tool, you know, people, you know, it happens. People are like, oh, I can go up on PubMed. Now, that creates another issue because not everyone understands research and, and the different sort of variables uh, to take into account, uh, you know, in, in terms of what's high quality research versus what's not. Um, but in the school psychology world, you know, we, we have our own little niche and, and there are sort of two ways, I think, um, you know, I'm sure many more than two ways, but two definite ways that information is conveyed from uh, academia to um, the practitioners out in the field. And one is our professional organizations. In Ohio, we have maybe, I think, one of the oldest, if not the oldest um, state organization um, in the country. And uh, we have a fall and a spring conference um, where, you know, you've got some of the latest research that is being conveyed to pr practitioners. We also have a national conference every year that is very well attended. Um, last year it was in Atlanta, this year it's in Baltimore, um, where you get some of the best researchers in the field who are presenting about, you know, uh, their most recent work uh, to be able to convey that to practitioners. And so uh, that works quite well. I think I'm, when I personally was a, a practitioner and would go to these conferences, I would come back just reinvigorated with a ton, like a notebook of information to kind of add to my practice. Uh, and then on top of that, it's um, students um, basically working as, as interns in school districts. So they learn the latest information, you know, from uh, graduate programs, then they um, go into internship and they pass some of what they've learned on to the people who are their supervisors in internship in the field, who may have been, you know, or who may have been in the field for 30 years uh, and get sort of a refresher on, oh, this is the latest actually. Uh, and then the, you know, uh, the internet has really changed things up mm -hmm. as well, you know, uh, the way in which um, various uh, internet sites are, um, you know, able to sort of aggregate, integrate a lot of this data and, and create these sort of engines, you know, so that school psychology, school psychology practitioners are just able to sort of like type in what they need, you know, and it'll spit out a research-based intervention that's, you know, and these websites are updated regularly as well. So uh, I think modern technology and our professional organizations and our, our connection between the universities and practitioners in the field has really allowed for a fairly steady um, transfer of information from, from research to practice. I'm I'm curious about uh, the role of uh, ideas uh, in uh, in guiding research and applications. So I'm not very well read on these, but I I know that there are some ideas about how teaching should happen, what is education, and how how children learn and things like that. So do those ideas come into uh, place while you while you're doing? Uh, research or maybe while you are actually doing the application stuff like when you're working in a school so there are some philosophical ideas i i'm blanking out on the name of a philosopher i'm pretty sure he uh, but he's very um he's very influential within the field so do you do you pay any attention to uh, those types of ideas or is it more like this is what the data says and we don't know what those people are saying those that's very idealistic kind of th stuff well, we are very data-driven in schools. I mean, we, you know, like in terms of philosophy and ideas, sure. I mean, some of the hypotheses to, you know, start our research may come from these ideas. Hmm. But at the end of the day, you know, it is what does the data say? What does the research say? Hmm. And what does sort of 
what do the meta-analyses say, you know, on, on top of that? And uh, are we able to sort of, does this uh, research stand up to um, replication as, as well? So I think we are um, very numbers-based, very, very data-based. I mean, there is sort of an art side to school psychology, and we do suggest that, yeah, there are a number of, um, you know, theories and types of uh, ways of approaching things. But at the end of the day, I think that we're more on the, on the data end and more on the, this is what the research says, this is what we're going to do. Um, yeah. You know, you'd mentioned that in, in recent years, this is kind of um, something that's become more and more, you know, important to the field is, is you know, um, using evidence, you know, as far as informing uh, practice. But, um, I mean, do you find that as it kind of is moving more this way that you find stragglers that are kind of like, hey, well, this is how I've done it and this is how it's always been done. And, you know, like in that and if that does exist, that you feel like that's something that maybe will kind of like work its way out as, as we move forward. Yeah, I, I mean, you're exactly right. There are lots of folks who are. Um, practicing in ways that are less evidence-based but by using like projective measures you know like draw a person and let's interpret what you know your drawing of this person has to you know what what this means uh you know there, there's a lot of that still going on and you know i don't always you know sort of like um you know poo-poo that and say oh you know you don't know what you're doing and when i that there is something to be said for folks who've do, been doing things for a while and um may have seen that these sorts of things work but uh you know the, the newer folks who are coming out of programs have been sort of had had it pounded into them that that this is you know we're focusing on on what the research says and what the evidence says um but the same token we don't dismiss the idea that um practitioners can learn things that researchers don't know and that researchers can provide or that practitioners can provide ideas for research um, and, and we have learned quite a bit from that. Like practitioners will say, well, you're saying this, but actually what I've seen in practice is this. That's important information. What's actually being done in the field um, and what's being seen clinically can inform research studies that can sort of corroborate what people are doing in the field. So I think it's important for people to um, pay attention to what's working for them and what's not working for them in the field, regardless of what the research says. I mean, we should try to do research-based things, but we should also say, well, if this is working, we shouldn't ignore it. Um, let's gather evidence to support what you're doing, and let's maybe talk to some researchers who can, you know, validate, you know, uh, what you've been doing such that more folks can begin doing it. So uh, I think that, that things do work sort of bi-directionally. You know, you've got the researchers doing uh, the research and, and conveying what they've learned, and you've also got the practitioners saying, all right, this is what I've seen work in the field. Maybe you should do some research in this area because I think you may, you know, we may be able to substantiate its use. So, in your experience as a school psychologist working in schools, what what has been the what has uh, what has been some of the most challenging things that you have faced, and how like what have what are some of the solutions for it? Uh, so, it's just uh, what I'm trying to get at is like what are the, some of the challenges that you see today in schools with children? and what do you think could be the proper solutions for it? Yeah, that's a, a good question, a big question. Uh, I mean, I think some of the things that have been most difficult for me deal, to deal with, and I would say at least personally, um, you know, are, are kids who are at risk of committing suicide. Um, those are difficult conversations to have with parents, difficult conversations to have with students. 
Um, and in terms of solutions, uh, you know, I think that there's a, a protocol that we go through to determine sort of risk level to try to determine whether or not a, a child needs very intensive interventions for suicide risk or sort of more moderate um, interventions. Um, but, you know, how, like, what what is the solution to um, that? I mean, you know, sort of more emphasis on mental health, um, helping kids to connect better with, with other people, uh, you know, those sorts of things that, that we talk a lot about doing, you know, especially with school violence um, being such an issue these days. Uh, but we don't end up, you know, providing funds for it. Uh, we don't end up... Um, you know, actually addressing the problem. Like, how do we provide more mental health? We need more mental health. Well, what does that look like? You know, how are you going to implement that? Where's the legislation? Where is the um, sort of the plan? Uh, and so that's kind of how I would ad address that overall issue. Um, you know, other issues in schools. Um, would say one thing that we talk about as school psychologists is that every child in the school should have a connection to an adult in the school where they feel trusted and respected and we feel that that's one way to decrease sort of overall problems like whether they're school violence whether they're mental health issues uh, whether they're motivation issues behavior issues every student should have at least one adult that they can um, go to that they they feel uh, they can confide in who trusts uh, them that who they trust uh, and and so I think that's one overall solution one thing that schools could do to decrease problems and then finally I would say that um, Sort of the, the the societal issues that kids bring into schools are big issues. The trauma that they come into schools with, and the realization that, you know, kids come into school with a lot of mental health baggage, and that 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 disallows them in many cases from concentrating on the academic work. Uh, and so, before they can even do that, we need to realize that they need help coping with the stress and this anxiety. It's it's a stressful and anxious world. I think that um, the more we learn about psychology, the more we realize that, that people, uh, generally speaking, are stressed and anxious. And kids are no exception. Uh, and kids especially um, may not be great at recognizing that they're stressed and anxious, may not know the difference between what it feels like to be stressed and calm. You know, And so teaching them these things, teaching them coping strategies, taking them through these sort of coping skills on a daily basis through you know, quiet times or a little meditation times, deep breathing activities, you know, uh, a, a kind of self-awareness practice. Uh, these are all important things such that kids can deal with the stressors of modern imperfect society where, uh, you know, things are very stressful at home and they've got to come to school and they're expected to achieve at high levels. Uh, and how can they bring it down uh, and, and, you know, sort of cope with um, what they've got going on personally such that they can concentrate on something seemingly abstract, you know, uh, during the school day. Yeah, I, I can't tell if it's that I'm sure I'm sure it's a little bit of both, but you know that I am getting an education in psychology now, so of course I'm like a lot more aware of this stuff than I used to be. But it also seems like some of what you're talking about is starting to filter a little bit more into the mainstream, where you know it's not weird to see 
I think I saw like on social media it was a clip of of Oprah I think on a uh, like a you know on a national talk show like mentioning you know children you know like that are dealing with trauma like trying to you know do some of the things that you're talking about and how you know that's you know like a pretty big in- impediment you can't just expect you know kids with you know a certain type of a ba- of backgrounds just to do things that kids that don't have that background can do because there's you know there's something going on there Absolutely. Uh, you know, in, six years ago when I started this job, I, I took my graduate students to sort of a meditation expert to learn about meditation and mindfulness. And I was worried at that point in time. I was like, oh, maybe this is going to be seen as religion. Maybe, like, someone's going to say, you shouldn't be doing this. And now it's it's everywhere. You go to a, a our National Association's conference, and everyone's presenting research about mindfulness and meditation in school psychology or yoga in school psychology. It's very mainstream, but things have changed very quickly. You know, the realization that these sorts of coping strategies and, and as, as applied to children um, can be helpful and, you know, can improve academic outcomes because once we address that mental health side, kids can focus better uh, on schoolwork, be less distracted, um, and, and perform better. I think another tangential question to uh, uh, some of the questions that topics that we were discussing is, how is how is it that your views about social justice informs what you do in school um, and uh, like and how uh, certain problems are seen or how certain problems are informed that's a great question and, and one that I have been pondering a lot lately because you know when I started in this field I think the idea of social justice was not a political thing you know and it was it's always been part of our national associations sort of ethical standards that we believe in social justice we believe in sort of equal equality uh, for everyone and having an equal chance sort of in you know at at great educational outcomes um, and, and so it was a really neat thing for me to be part of the field and part of our professional organization because I felt very connected to that idea that, that there should be this fairness, this justice, this equality, you know, that, that, that was pervasive in, in our practice and in our service delivery. Um, and, and so I think that one of the ways that that informs practice is um, constantly, you know, considering one's um, biases, considering where you come from, um, how you grew up, you know, the, the privilege you do or you do not have, the way that you, you connect to particular students, uh, the way that they may see you, uh, it, and, and the way that that may influence the, how you score a, an IQ test, for instance, that you give. Um, you know, uh, the way, like, there's an idea of, uh, um, you know, I'm blanking on the exact term, but you see a child who maybe is particularly attractive, you like their personality, you automatically think they're smart for that reason, so you've got a bias going into testing and you're scoring them better because of that. You know, um, it may also be um, uh, you see a child who is uh, from a minority group and you're worried about scoring them too low because of your bias, but then you end up sort of like scoring them too high on a test or something like that. So thinking about bias, trying to be as objective as possible, trying to be fair, um, as fair as possible, uh, trying to support fairness uh, and equality for students, and um, you know, thinking about situations in which students are alienated or disenfranchised, mm-hmm. trying to make sure that, that you're inclusive. Lots of times I talk about the school psychologist being the, the person in the school who is connecting with the student that you know, no one else uh, is connecting with. You know, teachers, maybe um, for some 
reason find disagreeable? Is other educators the same? And, and so uh, th it's the school psychologist's job to say, no, that person needs to be included wherever they come from, whatever their background is, whatever makes them disagreeable to this other, all these other people, we're the ones who could connect to them. And so for, for me um, personally, social justice is all about fairness, inclusiveness, um, you know, justice, uh, and, and, and kind of keeping that objective mindset in, in sort of everything that we do uh, and trying to kind of bring harmony to the environment to say, this is a multicultural place. Uh, we accept that, we appreciate that, we think that that adds um, richness, uh, you know, to en enriches the experience of education, uh, and we're going to support all the children here and try to do so in an equal way, um, such that that everyone has an equal shot. I think that's a great place to uh, end the conversation, and um, we'll we'll finish it up with a, a question we always uh, finish up with. Um, but what advice do you have for you know any undergrads who um, are psychology majors or are considering a psychology major? So considering a psychology, I would, my advice would be to explore all the different areas of psychology um, because there are many, you know, and you've got cognitive psychology, perceptual psychology, biological psychology, and, and sort of that end of like the brain end. And then you've got the, the, the clinical end, which is, you know, just as scientific on the other end, but in sort of a different way and sort of more of a social way. And uh, so explore all the areas of psychology. Um, Try to determine which you're most passionate about, uh, which you're most interested in, and, and how you might turn that into a career in one way, shape, or form. Uh, I don't think that you know graduate school is required, you know, uh, for all psychology undergraduate majors afterwards. Like there are plenty of ways in which psychology can be transferred to sort of uh, the the job world right after a bachelor's degree. Um, so explore all the different areas of psychology. See what you're passionate about. Um, talk with um, you know the, your your professors uh, about you know fields that you could go into after your undergraduate. Uh, and and make a determination based on that, but don't feel like you have to know what you want to do as soon as you, um, you know, get you to start start out in in undergraduate. Uh, feel free to explore. You got the rest of your life to to figure out what you want to do. You know, uh, and you should it should probably be, you should think pretty hard about what you want to do, uh, and and not just for instance take the advice of someone else, you know, who just said something one time and latch onto that and say, well, that's what I'm going to do. And now that that's what I'm going to do, I feel better about my life and my direction. But really try to think hard about it because uh, your life's important and you're going to spend a lot of time, you know, working in a particular career. So uh, you ought to really explore and think hard about it and think about what you like to do every day and like, what do I like to do? Do I, do I like to be moving? Do I like to sit? Do I like to work with people? Um, how does that you know, translate in, into uh, sort of what I want to study and, and you know, what I want my path to be. I think you made a really important point there, and you brought up a lot of stuff that, you know, I think, um, or I know that, you know, I've been, you know, I've struggled with myself, you know, and as far as like deciding on a major and then deciding on psychology, and then, well, that's a pretty broad field. Like, how do I want to narrow that down? And, um, you know, you mentioned, you know, latching on to what, you know, somebody said, because that sounds pretty good, and, like, I can kind of have a thing that I want to do with my life right now, and, um, you know, I mean, I've had those moments where it was kind of like, okay, cool, like, I know what I want to do, like, it feels good just to know that, but then it's like, 
but is there some more work that needs to be done here? Is this really the thing I want to do? And almost not wanting to do that because it felt so good to like have an idea of where my future mm-hmm. was going, but it ultimately being like not the like right yeah, fit. and and worthwhile yeah. to really question it and say like, okay, wait a minute, do I need to do some more like due diligence here as far as like yeah. where it is that I'm I'm heading? Yeah, and uncertainty never feels good, but it's a necessary, I think, process. It's a necessary discomfort. Um, during this plot process of exploration. Um, and, you know, I'm always impressed by the students who have the patience and the, the willpower, the discipline to really search out the, what's going to be a, a, an intelligent path for them, as opposed to saying, well, you know, my mom or dad did this, so I just decide that this is what I'm going to do too, which, you know, no offense to folks who do things that way, but I think that it, it, it is the, the more difficult path to really sort of, you know, meticulously decide what you want to do and and talk to a lot of people, not jump on one thing just because certainty feels better, but to say, you know, this, my life is important. This is going to be a long career. I've got to be happy with what I'm doing, you know, all day for work. And and ideally, I would like to be passionate about it and feel that this is sort of a unique contribution that I'm offering to the world. Thank you so much. That was very well put. Yeah, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. This was a lot of fun.